Well, like Pastor John said, we begin a new sermon series today um, on the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and uh, baptism. So as we go through this, we'll be guided by the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, every week we'll uh, recite a Lord's Day that deals with the sacraments. And so today on the first day, uh, we begin with uh, Lord's Day 25, I believe. So I'll ask the question and then uh, if you would all respond with the answers. It is through faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where then does that faith come from? What are the sacraments? Sacraments are visible, holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our reading of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and the seal of that promise. And this is God's gospel promise to grant us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? How many sac sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Two, holy baptism and holy love. So after reading the Lord's Day 25, at least one thing should be clear to you. And that's that the sacraments are all about the gospel. They are visible signs and seals that help us understand it more clearly and confirm our faith in God's gospel promises. Without the gospel, there are no sacraments. So it seems appropriate to start out our series on the sacraments by preaching from a text that is a clear and concise summary of the gospel. And that's from uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, I'll read from chapter 15. First Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, 
most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for many of us, the start of school this week means that vacations are over. The sand that fell from our suitcases has been swept up and our ears are finally clear of lake water. But the busyness of the season, including all of the new ministries and activities starting again at church, can make us long to return once more to the cottage or the trailer or wherever it is you go to get away from the restlessness and incessant busyness of life as usual. In 1941, E.B. White, who was the author of books like Stuart Little or Charlotte's Web, echoes this longing to return somewhere peaceful in a short essay called Once More to the Lake. The essay is about a trip he took with his son to visit the lake he had vacationed, where he had vacationed with his family as a kid. He begins his essay, quote, one summer along about 1904, my father rented a camp on a lake in Maine and took us all there for the month of August. We got ringworm from some kittens, and my father rolled over in a canoe with all his clothes on. But outside of that, the vacation was a success. And from then on, none of us ever thought there was any place in the world like that lake in Maine. E.B. White admits that as an adult, he has really come to prefer the ocean to the lake. He has become a saltwater man. But he goes on to say, sometimes in summer there are days when the restlessness of the tides and the fearful cold of the seawater and the incessant wind make me wish for the placidity of a lake in the woods. He writes, a few weeks ago this, I got this feeling so strong I bought myself a couple of bass hooks and spinners and returned to the lake where we used to go. He brought along his son, who had never had any fresh water up his nose and who had only seen lily pads from a train. They returned once more to the lake, where many things had changed, and yet in some ways, nothing had changed. The first morning they went fishing, and White felt the same damp moss covering the worms in the bait can that he had felt as a child. A dragonfly landed on the tip of his fishing rod in the same way he had come to expect as a child. White writes that the small waves were the same, chucking the rowboat under the chin as we fished at anchor. And the boat was the same boat, the same color green, the ribs broken in the same places, and under the floorboards, the same freshwater debris, a dead helgramite, wisps of moss, and rusty, discarded fish hooks. When White goes once more to the lake, he experiences the fullness of his memories. He remembers his childhood ad 
in such vivid colors that he may as well be a little kid sitting across from his own father with his fishing rod hovering a few inches above the water. Well, as Paul writes his letter to the Corinthian believers, it becomes more and more clear that they need to return once more to the lake like E.B. White did. They need to refresh their memories, to experience the fullness of their memories. Not memories of an actual lake, of course, but their memories of being a child in their faith, of encountering the good news of Jesus Christ for the first time. They need to return once more to the gospel. Now, from the surface, this Christian community in Corinth seems to have a lot of things going for it. They're an incredibly gifted group of people. If we were to imagine their church in today's terms, well, we would see lively, spirit-filled worship that is open and welcoming to everyone from the community. Their preachers were masters at being interesting and relevant. They knew exactly how to turn a phrase and how to tell a good pastor joke, striking the right balance of self-deprecation and cheesiness. And the churches seem to be thriving. People all over the city are hungry for this spirit-filled worship. So you scratch the surface of this church just a bit, and it becomes clear that things are not as they seem. They have a lot of questions for Paul. And it seems that Paul has heard about some pretty sketchy things that have been happening since he left them. A man in their congregation is sleeping with his father's wife. This isn't even acceptable among the most freewheeling Greeks and Romans, but the Corinthian Christians are proud of it. Others in their congregation are taking each other to court. The problems go on. Sexual immorality, social and economic divisions at the Lord's table. And there seems to be a common denominator here. For all of their so-called spiritual maturity, they don't know what to make of their bodies, their embodied existence in the world. Well, they do know what to make of their bodies. Actually, they make very little of their bodies. They have distorted the Christian message to be primarily, maybe even exclusively, about spiritual or so-called heavenly matters. Sleep with whomever you want to sleep with. As long as you have faith, it doesn't really matter. And don't worry about uh, economic or social injustices. These are temporary, material things. Focus instead on wisdom and knowledge. These things will last forever. You can experience a spiritual resurrection today, their slick creatures might say. As Paul responds to all these problems they're having, he finally gets toward the end of his letter, to the big finale in chapter 15, and what it all comes down to is the fact that the Christians or the Corinthians need to return to the gospel. The gospel which Paul preached to them and which they accepted. Paul brings them once more to the gospel of the risen Christ. Now for us today, at the start of a new school year and a new year of church ministry, it certainly wouldn't hurt for us to also return once more to the gospel, especially as we start a series 
um, the sacraments, which are visible signs and seals of this very gospel message. We may find that we are in need of this trip back to the gospel just as much as the Corinthians. Now, when I think about the problems in Corinth and the way they had separated the gospel message of Jesus Christ from their bodies in the world, I'm reminded of my time working as a waitress. On a slow weekday evening shift, I recall helping my friend Courtney clear her table. And tucked under the edge of a dinner plate, where there would normally be a tip, was a small booklet instead. It was titled something like, How to Get to Heaven, or Where Will You Go When You Die? It wasn't unusual for people to leave us waitresses little tracks like these, along with a smaller than usual tip. I mean, we had a small pile of these collecting dust in the back by the computer. But this time there was no tip. Courtney sighed as she stuffed the booklet into her apron and said, I don't know why people assume I'm not a Christian. I am. But I also need to pay my bills this month. I don't doubt that the person who left this tract had good intentions, but even now it seems to miss some of the point of the gospel of the risen Christ. I mean, this is just a small snapshot of how so much that counts as contemporary Christianity actually separates the gospel of Christ and the Christian hope from our daily lived realities. The well-intentioned person who left the booklet for Courtney intended to offer her the promise of going to some ethereal, spiritual, heavenly place, but no help for her bills that month. Much of what passes as Christianity may be reduced to a kind of disembodied spiritual message about going somewhere far away when you die. Now this is a distortion of the gospel. And it betrays the fact that we, too, may not be so different from the Corinthians. We, may, we too, may need to return once more to the gospel of the risen Christ. Now, apart from the similarities between us and the Corinthians, there are many other reasons why we feel an ache to return once more to the gospel. Perhaps your faith feels shaky, or you're confused about what God would have you do with your life. Or you're just so busy or maybe even bored with your life that you've forgotten what it's like to feel anything deeply. Maybe you ache to return once more to the gospel because you feel deep pain or sadness or loneliness. And you wonder if there is any glimmer of hope in this gospel for your tired body. Maybe you have become like E.B. White, a saltwater person who has grown tired of the restlessness of the tides and the fearful cold of the sea and the incessant wind that makes you wish for a different rhythm, for calmness and rest. So let's go once more to the gospel. Sisters and brothers, here is the gospel Paul received and that he preached. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, then to Paul. 
People of God, if you long to return to the gospel once more because you live under the weight of sin, if you feel helpless to break your life-draining, relationship-damaging habits, hear this good news. Christ has died for our sins. We are no longer compelled to bear the weight of our own sins. We are no longer slaves to sin. Now we can be open and vulnerable to the work of God's life-giving spirit to root out what is ugly, to plant what is beautiful and life-affirming. Our sin has been buried with Christ. And people of God, if like the Corinthians, you need to return once more to the gospel because you live with the assumption that our bodies are disposable, that our world is heading toward a fiery end, and that your greatest hope lies in escaping your body and this world to go live somewhere else for eternity. Well, hear this good news, a better story. Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. Paul will continue in the following verses to explain that if Christ's body has been raised, then ours also will be raised. Death does not get to keep anything. The grave does not get to keep our bodies. The very things that God knit together in our mother's wombs are not finally destined to decay for eternity. Christ's tomb was empty. His body was raised imperishable, raised in glory and power and animated by God's own spirit. So it will be with us when Christ returns. And when the sons and daughters of God are revealed in their resurrection glory, then all of creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Creation will be purified and renewed, not destroyed. It's important to get this right, because this is a statement ultimately about what God loves. And God does not just love our souls. God so loved the world that he sent his son. The word for world in Greek is cosmos. God so loved the cosmos. And Christ's resurrection has set in motion the renewal of that which he loves. And people of God, if you long to return once more to the gospel because your faith is stagnant, dried up, or uncertain, hear this good news. The risen Christ appears. Christ appears to Peter, to the 12 disciples, to some 500 people, to James, and even to Paul, a persecutor of Christ's church. When Christ appears to these people, it's a kind of confirmation God's gospel promises. When Christ appears to his disciples, it seals the defeat of sin and death and the triumph of Christ's sacrifice. The gospel is that Christ has died and Christ has risen, and his appearances confirm that gospel message. Now, this is the same way our Heidelberg Catechism talks about the sacraments. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper confirm and seal our faith in God's promises 
just like Christ's appearances confirmed and sealed his apostles' faith. The sacraments are symbols that help us encounter the risen Christ. The Reformed conviction about the sacraments is that Christ is really present. Not that somehow the bread and wine like turn into Christ's body and blood, but still that Christ is present. Now, the exact way that all this works remains a mystery, but it's not far-fetched to say that when we participate in the sacraments, we can expect to encounter the risen Christ in the water, in the bread, and in the drink. Now, I told this story a few weeks ago in an evening service, so I hope those of you who were there won't hold it against me. <clears throat> but in 2007, my family traveled to Florida for my mom's graduation ceremony uh, at the Institute of Worship Studies. Anyway, the day before the ceremony, my younger brothers received news that their good friend Kyle had died in a car accident. They were distraught. They felt hopeless and helpless being so far away from their friends and feeling like Jesus was absent and their faith was slipping. But they came with the rest of the family to the graduation ceremony and being an institute for worship studies, well, the graduation was really more like a worship service complete with celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now when it came time for my brothers to go to the front of the church and receive a wafer and a sip of wine, they both uh, left the sanctuary in tears instead. Uh, but my dad went after them. He told them, come, come with me, we'll all go up together. Maybe sensing that this meal would be a place where their faith would be sustained. The younger of the two, Matthew, went with my dad. They walked toward the front of the church, my dad's arm under Matthew's arm, holding him up as they went. They knelt down on the bench together and waited for their turn. This is Christ's body given for you. This is Christ's blood poured out for you, the minister said to Matthew. And somehow, God's gospel promises to Matthew and to his friend who had passed away were confirmed and sealed and the bread and the wine. Matthew told me later that he still remembers it was a powerful, hope-filled experience in the middle of a hopeless situation. But he said, I couldn't quite articulate what happened. We might say that in some mysterious way, Christ encountered Matthew to confirm God's gospel promises. This is the gift of the sacraments. So having once more gone to the gospel, in the following weeks we'll consider what it means or what we believe about the sacraments. But now, brothers and sisters, let's join our hearts as we come once more to the table of our Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this, the gift of your gospel. We praise you too for the gift of the sacraments which confirm your promises to us. So as we come once more to your table, would you open our eyes of faith to see you and to see the good news of the life that has been made available to us through Christ's own death and resurrection. 
Use this meal to stretch our imaginations from the past and into the future when Christ will come again and we'll celebrate together with all creation at the great wedding feast of the Lamb who is your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.